I got, I got shorts, every fucking color. Mm -hmm. I got designer t-shirts. I got gold bullets, motherfucking vampires. Mm -hmm. I got Scarface on repeat. Scarface on repeat. Constant, y'all. I don't know what's going on here. I was just at work for real. Like man, I'm, I'm man, just trying to do my man. job, and I don't know. You can get a rich man if you tried. I don't want a rich man. You can't close the leads you're given. You can't close shit. You are shit. Hit the bricks, pal, and beat it, because you are going out. Did you see the memo about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have the memo right here. I just uh, forgot. But uh, it's not shipping out till tomorrow, so there's no problem. Hi, welcome to Projections Podcast Series 4. This season, we're looking at work and money on screen, critiquing modern economics through a psychoanalytic lens. We'll discuss excess, pursuit, competition, livelihood, austerity, property, and post-digital work, culminating in liberation, to touch on the various trials, tribulations, and traumas of accessing the means of survival. First, we pitch them Disney, AT&T, IBM, blue chip stocks exclusively. Companies these people know. Once we've suckered them in, we unload the dog shit, the pink sheets, the penny stocks, where we make the money. It's your choice to be a skivvy, isn't it? A skivvy doesn't come to you, you go to it. Come on, let's go to Paris's. I want to rob. All right, we're recording. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Mary. How are you this week? I've been okay, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Oh, I actually am on my 14th day in a row of 750 words. Oh, amazing. So this is your writing practice. Yeah, this is my writing practice. Are you still doing yours? Oh, I'm ashamed to say that I have, I've given up on it. Oh, I gave up on it for months. I gave up on it for absolutely months. And then I ended up starting again. Now I'm on a streak, which is really, really nice. It makes me feel that even if, like, at the very least, I'm achieving, like, one tiny thing a day, which is, which really makes life easier. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's a, that's a nice thing to do, because I feel like when I was doing it, when I was consistent with it, it helped me to, to order and organize my ideas, and I miss Mm -hmm. that. Um, And then for the rest of the weekend, I've just been watching these disturbing films that we're going to talk about this week. I know I've been I've been sort of like simultaneously looking forward to and dreading this topic because the film compliance gives me so much anxiety. Mm-hmm. I honestly think if it's not already in that genre, compliance should be classed as a horror film. Absolutely. I, I don't see what other genre it could be. It could be. Um, exactly. It's like it's actually and it's also got the structure of a horror film like, um, you know, sort of like peril and then like a false sense of safety and then like a worse, t- a worse turn that's yes. worse than before. Um, and then I sort of, uh, sort of a rescue. So it's actually, it's got, it's structured like a horror movie. Um, yeah. I think it's a, to- it's a torture porn genre. Yeah. Oh yeah. 100%. Like, I feel like it is like, a, it could be like classified as social horror, as home invasion, as, as you say, torture porn. 
house of horrors, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's 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 really messed up. Hang on, Sarah. I'm just going to close this window to make sure no noise trickles in. <laughs> I thought you meant a window on your browser. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I know, but it was just a boring old analog w window. Like. <laughs> so austerity. So we're going to start off with compliance as it, as, as it happens and then finish off with under the skin. I think I'm sure that most people have seen under the skin, if not compliance. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, before we jump into the two films, could I just set out a little bit of theory for austerity? I would love for you to do that, because I know that you actually do teach both these films under that sort of title. I do. And I've been really curious to, to, know, to know a bit more about the theory behind it. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, uh, how I approach these two films in my lectures is I'm interested more in the subjective dimension of austerity. So the effects on how people view themselves and others under this kind of like economic model of austerity. So i.e., you know, the, the state um, preventing funds from being invested into the public sector, um, all kinds of, you know, budgets being um, halted to help schools, hospitals, the arts, just kind of social endeavors where it gives rise to a, um, an economic market where it's more like the private sector that really is invested in mm -hmm. by the state. This also includes um, pay cuts, you know, people having salary freezes for years, not being able to save up. I think what particularly these two films address is that desire to make like a very honest attempt to succeed. But in both cases, they are destroyed. They're like vaporized. Uh, the, the hopes and dreams are vaporized under austerity because austerity operates on, on the logic of scarcity economics, the idea that there's not enough resources to go around. So we have to be very careful about managing funds and there's only so much that we can invest in the other. And so it's very brutalizing on the psyche. So we're in for a depressing ride. <laughs> we're in for a depressing <laughs> ride. It's kind of like a real call out, calling out. Mm -hmm. of the subjective reality and experiential reality of how austerity feels on our psyche and what is being taken away from us, like what we're actually, what it is that we're compromising, what it is that we're exchanging and sacrificing when we enter into the bargaining relationship on the premise of austerity. It's a very dangerous ground. So uh, without further ado, shall we move on to the first of the film's compliance? Yes, absolutely. Okay, I've got a synopsis. It's quite a long synopsis for what's actually a really simple film that takes place in pretty much one location. Yeah. Um, but there were just some details in it that I wanted to include because I found them interesting. Yeah. Um, so Sandra, a middle-aged manager at a fast food restaurant, is expecting a stressful Friday night due to a shortage of bacon and a group of young employees she considers lazy, disrespectful and possibly untrustworthy. Early in the evening, she receives a phone call from someone identifying himself as Officer Daniels. He claims to be in contact with the regional manager about a customer whose purse was allegedly stolen by an employee that day. Based on the description, Sandra identifies the suspect as her employee, Becky. Under instruction from Daniels, Sandra brings Becky into her office, where, over the course of the night, events take a disturbing turn. Perfect. So this is a 2012 release. 
American low-budget thriller based on true events written and directed by Craig Zobel. So apparently the real perpetrator who committed this type of crime did so about 70 times over 12 years. Yeah, this is like a really shocking real-life crime. The Wikipedia entry is called The Strip Search Phone Call Scam. Actually, a lot of the details in compliance are all from one event. Oh, right. 2004, it's called the Mount Washington scam. Oh call was made God. to a McDonald's in Mount Washington, Kentucky. Um, oh and I sort of scrolling down this, uh, scrolling down this entry, I can see that a lot of the things that happened in the film really did happen in this one occasion. It really is pure horror. Like I've seen this film now three times, and the first time I ever watched it was at the London Film Festival. Oh wow. Uh, it was the UK premiere and the director was there and I, it was really interesting to see the audience reaction because a lot of people were really angry in the Q&A, angry at the director to mm. say like, uh, how dare you make a film like this? Nobody would act in such a way. Nobody would be so subservient and just not question and you know, they were really angry and he's like, yeah, but it happened. Like, I'm it's, I'm not making this up. Like, this happened. And some people were, like, outraged and blaming the director. And I couldn't mm. believe I couldn't believe what I was witnessing. It was like a really weird, almost like a hyster- hysterical response. And I couldn't help but think that maybe those people who were the angriest probably felt the most attacked in the sense that maybe they... If they were being confronted by something that they were capable of and they didn't like that. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure that's the case. I think it is a really anxiety-provoking thing to confront. Yeah. Um, and even, I've seen it before, and as I was settling down to watch it again, I was thinking over the events that happened in the film because, you know, this girl, this girl's strip search, well, first of all, she has to take all her clothes off yeah. and have her clothes searched, and then they take her clothes away and lock them in the manager's car. And then, oh, um, and then there's like a, a sort of succession of different people watching her, and the caller tries out these different people to see what they'll do, and some people refuse to go along with it, and some people, and so like they're replaced by people until he finds someone who is the most sort of compliant in what he's asking them to do, and this girl ends up being sexually assaulted. And I was, and I, so I remember the events of the film and what you know what actually happened in real life really well, and I was thinking ahead on it, and I was thinking. You know, that guy who assaults her in the end, I mean, I can understand up to a certain point that it's it's a con man. But I could, but at this point, like, this guy must just be a rapist. Like, this yes. must be, like, a suggestion is made that he would want to do anyway, and that's why he does it. But, yeah. and that's what I was really, I was really sure that that's what I was going to say in this episode. And then you get to that part, and you kind of, re- I don't know, I was sort of left with a feeling that it was a sexual assault on two people. Yeah. Which, like, obviously physically affected one person very badly. Yeah. Um, but I I think that, you know, both of those people have been assaulted to yeah. a certain extent. I felt, I felt really sorry for the guy. I did think to a certain extent about the kind of different frame of mind you're in when, like, something sexual is happening. Yeah. Um, and how that can sort of distort your <laughs> morality a little bit, yeah, which yeah. sounds like I'm being a rape apologist. I'm not. No, 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 no. Um, Whenever the, it's the question of desiring and wanting something, it is perfectly normal to feel a degree of ambivalence towards that thing that you want, because mm. if you get it, then you stop desiring. 
and you know, but at the same time, if you don't get it, you'll be disappointed, but you'll keep, you'll still keep chasing after it. And this type of mechanism, this psychological mechanism is very, very fluid and it's very ambivalent. It's always changing. And when we are talking like in economics, that can very easily be manipulated and exploited so that we're always left in this kind of weird interior whirlpool of never knowing whether we got what we asked for, whether we even got what we are due, Mm. you know, and a lot of this, I feel like, especially compliance. Oh, sorry. That's the ice cream van. Can you hear? (laughs) Yeah, I can. (laughs) Oh my God. I don't know whether I'll cut this out or not, but maybe I'll just continue talking over it. Um, sorry, it's very distracting. Um, so a lot of the times we're particularly like if we're talking about being in a work situation or work setting, um, we are entering into a contract where we're exchanging our labor for obviously funds that are owed to us. Mm. And it's just interesting with austerity, this kind of like ideology that, says, you know, your work is now worth less. You know, you you won't have as much opportunity to have social mobility, economic mobility. It's telling you right off the bat that everyone's going to have to like make sacrifices and you're going to have to accept that you'll just be stuck in this perpetual place. There's no forward moving for a very long time. Mm. And so that takes a toll on us psychically where we're like, we kind of are forced to accept that we're being exploited. And I feel like this film psychologically or subjectively mimics what happens to to us when we know we are being exploited, but we're being threatened at the same time. That if we leave, something bad's gonna happen to us. And that's exactly like for a very long time, the caller, Officer Daniels, tells Becky that if she doesn't play along, something bad's going to happen to her brother or her family, that, you know, they're searching her house, that they've got something on her brother legally. Mm. She's going to be in trouble. She's going to spend time in jail. Like, she's absolutely threatened multiple times along the way. And austerity creates that kind of psychological environment where it's like we're being held up and we're just forced at gunpoint to enter into this economic trade-off that does not benefit us. It like hurts us constantly. A lot of this film is also wonderfully like reflecting the Milgram experiment where willing participants were obeying an authority figure who instructed them to perform acts that conflicted with their personal conscience. Like this obedience study is kind of what all of us are having to confront in an economy that we know hurts us, but Mm. we still have to obey. And and it's an economy we know hurts other people like significantly more than us as well. Um, like we know like we know that there are like actually people dying because of fast fashion or you know like in those kind of examples we're sort of presented with this alternate reality where the moral ramifications don't matter wow yeah yeah that's so true and you can see that in this film in compliance the different tiers of people Mm. that that some people are just not affected you know they're high enough higher enough enough in the ranks of this restaurant this fast food restaurant and and somebody like Becky 
who maybe was uh, ranking a little bit lower in the hierarchy, she was probably deliberately chosen because she was more vulnerable mm. to be exploited. And other people just naturally had more of a protection because of where they were in the hierarchy. Um, you're absolutely right there. It's totally unequal. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's this belief that noble collective belt tightening is a just and moral thing to do that we all have to suffer together, or like the former chancellor, George Osborne said, we're all in this together. <laughs> um, th this idea of closing ranks in the face of adversity, it sort of echoes almost like moral or religious teachings, you know, the knee jerk reaction that, you know, when things go wrong, we, we you know, all of us are somehow guilty, and we have to pay the price and suffer. So let's do something that hurts and accept our punishment. Mm. Um, this in reference, of course, to the 2008 economic crash, that was the excuse that was presented for austerity, you know, um, but actually, we know that austerity economically is actually a scam, it doesn't work. Most leading economists believe that it's literally just a scam that funnels money from the poor to the rich, it doesn't help to restore uh, a country's economy, it's it's literally, it's a very dishonest and it should be looked at as a criminal offense. It's really hurtful and it harms so many people. So many times, Sandra, the manager, she keeps repeating that she's just trying to do her job. You know, she feels the responsibility and the weight to facilitate Officer Daniel's commands. And this is so much like uh, Hannah Arendt's idea of the banality of evil, this philosophical reason that was presented by Arendt to explain what was going on in the Second World War with Nazis, so many people that didn't identify as murderers, and yet they participated in actions that led to genocide. And when they were interviewed, they were like, well, I didn't shoot anyone. I was just the person like signing letters or like ordering things to open and close at a certain time. Uh, I didn't hurt anyone directly. I was just doing my job. And Arendt is saying how actually so much evil and destruction is caused by people who genuinely believe that they're morally immune uh, because they were just following orders. There's something that happens to that character right in the beginning of the film that I think is like also almost like a bit of a setup for what happens next, which is yeah. when someone left the freezer open the night before and there's no bacon yeah. in like a rest in a fast food restaurant, which you need for all of the bacon cheeseburgers I guess but the delivery man tells her off he's basically like you you can't get through the night because of this and it's this really strange scene because it's sort of none of his business yeah and that he's furious with her because for something that doesn't seem to be anything to do with him and I don't know I, f I feel like without that sort of moment that almost the rest of the film wouldn't have happened you put this person in this precarious position and then like no one's safe after that yeah. because this person who's supposed to be in charge is in this precarious situation. Absolutely. And it sort of creates this almost like a domino effect of Sandra feeling like she had been admonished and she had been told off. Mm. And now as the manager of this restaurant where she commands her perceived like higher power over these people, she's going to like take it out on them and she's just going to like inflict the same embarrassment you know mm, embarrassment <laughs> Almost, um yeah. I think humiliation and embarrassment are important 
are important tools for maintaining that kind of system yeah actually because I think like I think that shame is a big part of austerity the the myth of austerity kind of takes the shame of not being successful in the capitalist society and turns it into a kind of hero like heroicism that was a really hard word to say it is sort of all tied up with like shame and humiliation to a certain extent oh yeah um and I was interested in the way that Becky is kind of othered by like the language that's used to describe her on the phone um because she goes from a fellow employee to a criminal and so like she's like declassed a little bit in the course of the film people have interpreted under the skin to be about to be about like the way that we perceive immigrants I think that this film is a little bit as well I think Becky is sort of turned into this person that has like threatened us all because she's a thief She's stealing something that belongs to that belongs to the people. You know, it's not that she just stole like money from one woman's purse. It's that she's like a thief. She's a criminal, so she's not a human yeah. being. She's not just stripped physically, she's also stripped of her human and human characteristics of like integrity and just kind of human value mm. because she's right away just declared a thief. She's not being accused. She's not being they're not formal charges where they're just allegations they're literally she's just literally being like declared almost by this officer like you've you've done it we we know you've done it like that's not how a police investigation is supposed to take place these these people obviously are are ignorant of that and they Mm. they they just take for granted this so-called officer's authority over them but actually I was thinking um as you were speaking that also, another important thing that happens right very, very early on in the film is the interaction at the counter where the women are discussing, like, Becky's love life. Yeah. And she's like, oh, I've got a couple. I'm talking to a few guys. I'm seeing a few people. You know, one of them sent me, like, a shirtless photo, whatever. And Sandra wants to kind of, like, be incorporated or she wants to kind of fit into that conversation. So she says that she and her fiance, we, we realize he hasn't actually even proposed. Like she just assumes that he's going to propose because he's, he's talked to her dad, mm. which is also interesting in terms of her ability, her susceptibility to live in a fantasy as opposed to reality, you know? Mm. And she says, you know, we like to spice things up. We like to keep things interesting and we sexed. And then when she walks off, she sees that the girls are kind of like laughing at her use of the term sexed. Mm. And I wondered whether like the fact that in that scene, Becky is eroticized. She's she's kind of the dominant one in, in, in terms of that context of being able to attract male attention and, and have like lots of different people interested in her. Um, I wondered whether that was perceived as a threat by Sandra, who is the manager. So she Mm. wouldn't want to see one of her like assistants or underlings or whatever you want to call it. Let's say subordinate employees. She wouldn't want to see them surpass her in another realm. Mm. So, so the fact that she was eroticized is interesting also in the theory of austerity because the worker in neoliberalism is always eroticized. Their labor is always the thing that capital wants to exploit and like conquer 
and she is a sexualized being as an eroticized being is marking herself as the prime target to be taken advantage of, to be violated in a contract that does not benefit her, where she is completely assaulted and transgressed and violated. And it is the other, you know, the, 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 the faceless person on the phone who claims to be her boss, who claims to have an authority over her that is doing the harming, you know, mm -hmm. this erotic capacity rather than just be allowed to develop naturally in a successful way to its fullest potential is actually taken advantage of. Can yeah. you explain a little bit what you mean by the by the worker being eroticized by neoliberalism? Yeah, I guess I just mean that um, in neoliberalism, the idea is that uh, workers are expected to work for minimum amount of pay without complaint, because in neoliberalism, the power of trade unions is diminished. Mm -hmm. So workers are not as capable of negotiating the best terms for their contract and for their salary. Other malign forces creep up uh, in terms of how they work, like zero hours contracts, um, where they can expect to just show up for work and be told, we don't have any work for you today, you can go back home. So it's like very, very poor conditions for work but yet the worker is expected to remain enthusiastic and always uh, subservient to those terms. They have no choice because that's the way they access the means of survival. Mm -hmm. the, means, the means of survival are also, psychoanalytically speaking, an erotic factor in this economic field because the life force is the thing that drives you to survive, right? It's the thing mm -hmm. that motivates you, that animates you, that gives you the will to live. So workers are full of this life-desiring force. They're full of this erotic energy. They are eroticized. Mm -hmm. They are. They arrive and they're like hopeful. They, they're hopeful that they will be given the opportunity to continue living, to facilitate their life. Well, under any economic system, workers are eroticized. It's just that, unfortunately, under neoliberalism, they are assaulted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they are. They are hurt. They are exploited. They, their eroticism is taken advantage of. It's they're raped, you know, um, theoretically speaking. Yeah. Um, maybe under a better mixed economy system, you know, that yes has like the sort of innovative um, ambitions of capitalism, where people want to invent and they want to move forward and they want to advance. But there's also socialized elements of the economy where their workers' rights are secured, you know, uh, there's a, it's just a mixed economy. Ideally, those eroticized workers are treated with respect and they're able to, to, to grow healthily in their practice of work. But my, my feeling is that under neoliberalism, that erotic energy is turned into something actually really traumatic. Mm. That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, not to mention gig economy. I forgot to mention that one as, mm -hmm. you know, alongside uh, zero hours contracts and things like that. Very harm can be very harmful. So uh, you, you uh, spoke about the fact that you find this film very like upsetting. 
yeah um, and triggering is that from um, the point of view of the sort of economic theoretical aspects or is it sort of the point of view of like work culture in the same way that you were quite triggered by office space yeah that's a good question I think it's it's both it's um, for me the whole strip search like the forced strip search in compliance represents three components of austerity like stripping away productivity preventing access to the means of survival and eroding human dignity and when I watch that play out in the film it just fills me with so much rage Mm. and so much disbelief at the people who are so willing and ready to accept these instructions and follow them and there's two characters who are just flat out like rejecting all of that and they're like my heroes in the film um but also, yeah, it does remind me, like, I've been in a workplace bullying situation. Like, I lived through that um, for a very long time, unfortunately. And while it was happening to me, I didn't know that, I didn't feel secure in making it stop because mm-hmm. my confidence had been so eroded. I felt like it was just something I had to put up with in order to access the means means of survival. And it was very traumatic. So, yeah, I think that that the main reason that this film, like, yeah, tri- I guess triggers me because while I was not phys- like sexually assaulted in that workplace, um, I was psycholo- psychologically like, abused every single day. And it just reminded me so much of like the people who would witness that as well. Like some of them were very brave and they would come and tell me like what happened what just happened is wrong Mary like you shouldn't put up with that but I also witnessed some people who just facilitated that behavior because I know because they didn't want to be targeted yeah um and maybe they obeyed the culture of bullying because they saw the perpetrator as their manager and an authority figure and it's just this whole like thing that happens you know where the victim is like yeah I suppose people who see themselves as potential victims are in a way asked to enable the abuse to be a good actor or a good actress for the oppressor and pretend that it's no bother because they're afraid it's going to happen to them as well Mm -hmm. yeah who is the the character who puts a stop to it at the end because I'm confused about what his role is like in the company Oh, the custodian, it says. He's a custodian, okay. What's a custodian? I don't know. <laughs> what is that? Janitor? Oh, maybe, yeah. Maybe he's like the, how do you say, like the concierge or something? Mm. Yeah, possibly. Or like the, just like the manager of the building? Yeah, yeah, could be. Possibly. I don't know, but it's interesting because it's like what, what equips him with that immunity to authority? Yeah. But also Kevin as well. Is, it, is his name Kevin? Yeah. Yeah, I really like Kevin. And you know what is really crazy, Sarah, is that in pre- in preparation for today's episode, I asked Paul to sit down and watch this with me. And I'm like, I'm going to show you a film and you're you're not going to believe it. Like it's so it's so disturbing. Like I I need you to see this with me. You you won't believe that it's like based on a true story. And like with, after like the t- the first 10 minutes, he just turns to me and he goes, "Uh Mary, you've shown this to me already. I've seen this." <laughs> I'm like, "What?" <laughs> He's like, yeah, he's like, it's like a phone scam, right? Like the guy on the phone is like a bad guy. And I'm like, oh my God. And I realized that 
of course, I probably had shown him in the past, but it's such a painful movie for me that I repress the memory of having watched it with Paul. Mm. Because I just can't hold that trauma in my brain. Like, I have to repress it. But it is a really well-made film. Like, I am so grateful to Craig Zobel for this because even though it's a horror show and it's disturbing, we need to confront this. Yeah, I think it's an incredibly made film. And, um, like, every sort of moment in it was beautiful. Like, all of the money is spent on the actors. Yeah. Like, there's no, like, there's no frills apart from that. Um, yeah. Even I really loved that. I thought that scene where the, they eventually get in touch with the real police and he yeah. gets in his car and drives and there's this beautiful scene of him driving, but it's just his face in the car yeah. and like the lights going by. And I just thought it was so beautiful. Like really, it was like a really masterful, gorgeous film in a film that's like really quite functional apart from that. Um, it yeah. just was this sort of moment of, of like flair of like directorial skill. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and just running through it constantly, the little close-ups of like the, the, all the different dimensions of this fast food restaurants, like the, the close-up of like the French fries and the mm-hmm. dishwater and like, just, it really brings together like the, the texture of working in a place like that and what it physically would be like to occupy that space. I've just realised another thing that um, that Becky's kind of um, she's sort of identified as being seditious. Yeah, um, right. In the beginning of the film, because she's sort of talking one of the other employees through the damaging effects of not having a fixed schedule. That's right. Um, she's saying, you know, you're you know, you have this like day off in the in the middle, and you're too tired to do anything with it. So it's like more time than you're working that's being taken away from you. That's right. Um, and the other employees like, yeah, yeah, you're totally right. You're like completely right. I can't get up in the morning of my day off. And that's, you know, that's like, un- that's unreasonable. And then they're caught in the middle of that conversation. Yeah. So that's partly, I think, as well, why Be- like Becky seems to be like, have a grasp on ev- everything she's giving or everything that's being taken away from her. More so yeah. than the other employees. So maybe that's also like partly why she kind of suffers so badly. I think because she's like more aware of her rights or more aware of the like the imbalance or the injustice than anyone else. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. That sets her apart a little bit um, as another dimension of threat attached to her. Mm. The fact that she's able to like articulate that. Wow, that is so true. And actually, I think, uh, you know, we're about to move on to um, Under the Skin. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking that I, I've really studied Under the Skin in depth because I used it in my uh, thesis for my master's. Oh, wow. Um, but when I, I remember first seeing Under the Skin, I went to the Prince Charles Cinema to see it with my friend Rowan uh, one evening. And it was just the most amazing. I just it was the most amazing film I'd ever seen. And we talked about it. all. We walked home from the Prince Charles oh. Cinema to Old Street and talked about it. And right from that moment, I thought. The thing that stood out, to, I think Under the Skin means so many different things to all the different people that watch it. And I think from interviews, it's, it seems that Jonathan Glazer feels that the process of making the film was the theme or was the narrative. So like he's very attached to the idea that it was kind of secretly filmed and had this kind of big star in disguise and that it uses uh-huh. a lot of real life people and that it's sort of very true to its location. So I think for him, he's sort of an artist that, feels that meaning will emerge through the process 
um, mm. of making a film rather than kind of because st- he, you know, this was based on a book, but he really stripped the narrative until there was very little left. That's right. But the thing that Under the Skin's always been about for me is language mm. and speech. Um, and I really noticed, and I will get more into it when we talk about it, but I feel like that's what connects these two films to a certain extent that they, yeah. they both identify language as violent. Mm. Um, or having the capacity for violence either when it, either a violent like a sort of revolutionary violence um mm-hmm. to be used against an oppressor or like an institutional violence to be used to keep people down that's right um, wow that, that, that theme really and so I was I was quite excited because it meant that I didn't have to relearn under the skin I could just take the same <laughs> <stories laughs> and apply them to this but I really think I really think language is important in both of these films or speech being kind of wielded against people. Yeah, um, especially the, given the way that Under the Skin starts, like that opening sequence of like the, it's like the alien learning language almost. Yeah, yeah. And she, like language is just a tool in this yes. film. It's not useful unless it's being used, like it's actually not useful to anyone unless it's being used violently. Yeah. Um, maybe like occasional occasional characters use it differently um so it's not like it's intrinsically violent but it's just kind of about the use of language i think the way the different people use it shall i synopsize under the skin yes before please we go? okay this is a very short one in comparison uh an unnamed woman from another world drives around glasgow picking up lonely friendless men luring them to a dilapidated house where they become trapped in a dark abyss one day she meets a man with a physical deformity and begins to grow curious about her own identity. 2013, so only a year later, uh, only a year following Compliance, um, released as a sci-fi horror art film directed by Jonathan Glazer. Okay. So as you mentioned, the adaptation of uh, Michael Faber's novel. Have you read the, no- the novel? I haven't read the novel. I oh, like, know have. loosely what the story is. Yeah. Um, but I've heard it's very, very, yeah, very different. But although apparently Michael Faber loved the film. I mean, apparently the person who wrote the screenplay didn't even read the book. Wow. Um, so I think Jonathan Glazer himself like stripped the story down and then told the story to the screenplay writer. Wow. He wrote he wrote it without reading the book. That's a really good strategy, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it shows what an interesting man Michael Faber is that he wasn't bothered by that. You know, he obviously thinks of like a story as having power that goes beyond just being like written down and read. Yeah, different potential. Mm. Wow, yeah. I like that. All right, well, so here's the thing. So I think that watching this film, it's very interesting to see someone presenting with an accent like it sounds like maybe it's coming from the south of England or maybe London mm. right so here in Glasgow she's presenting with this accent driving around in this van picking up random people off the street seemingly usually people who are unattached so she often will ask you know do you have a family and usually if they say yes she drives off it's she's really only targeting like maybe isolated people or certainly always working class people and working class men. And then when she invites them back to her place, um, they go thinking it's going to be like a sexual encounter. And it's those wonderful scenes, those like highly original, like captivating cinematic scenes of her, essentially her flat or her home being represented as this like strange abyss. Mm. 
mm-hmm. where the men follow her and they sink into like they're lowered into this strange body of wa- dark water and they're trapped in there and then she just walks off but the body of the kidnapped victims stay in this strange liquid mm. and then collapses leaving empty skin behind and to me I just cannot help but watch this movie as a symbol of subjective the subjective experience of neoliberalism particularly Margaret Thatcher's policies in Scotland in the 1980s i.e this alien force you know that has nothing to do with the local area you know, this Westminster, you know, um, uh, destructive force mm-hmm. coming in and systematically and casually destroying young working class men in Scotland. Um, it, it reminds me of the quote from Karl Marx, where he said, capital is dead labor and like a vampire can only keep itself alive by sucking the blood of living labor. The more blood it sucks, the more vigorously it lives. What seems to be happening is that when she targets these guys and they go into this dark water, whatever this is, something strange is also occurring. Whereas like, you know, like that red window that opens up Mm. and and then like a vacuum sucks the contents of the water. I can't help but think that she's basically just using human beings as fuel for her to keep herself going. And like somehow she's stealing their energy or she's like co-opting their their energy or their their subjectivity to forward and advance herself. Do and you feel that she's like the top of the food chain then? Yes, I think that she's like as an alien force um, descended on this place and seduces people into kind of like co- coming into her ideology but then they're trapped and she sucks the life out of them. And what what ends up happening, the drama of the story is that she keeps doing this repeatedly. And then when she encounters one of her would-be victims, who's uh, the man who appears with the disfigured face, mm-hmm. there's something about him that like humanizes her, where she can't go through with the process of destroying him uh, in that method. And something about him like changes her uh, fundamentally, whereas like she starts to to remove herself a little bit from the alien disposition and starts to go towards more human feelings. And for whatever reason, that humanization leads to him being released from the trap and he actually escapes. And so from that point on, I believe she's caught up in a state of being half alien, half human. And she's sort of lost and then she 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 wanders off seemingly away from her objective from her mission mm. and then she meets this guy and there's like this kind of romantic thing that happens i think that in a way under the skin i read it as austerity here kind of like failing because the human potential seeps in and that comes into the way of austerity like that is the thing that stops austerity from achieving its mission um I don't know I think that's a really good theory yeah I think that's really I I really like that I like that a lot I think that's really interesting um I think that there are like there are so many ways for this film to be interpreted the thing is that there is no right answer no 
with this film, but I think that's like a solid theoretical um, <laughs> like idea of what this of what this film is. I mean, just as you say, there's so many different ways to read this film, and that's the beauty of it because it is so abstract. And I'm certainly not suggesting that, like, you know, Jonathan Glazer set out to make a film about economics. Like, definitely mm-hmm. not. No. But I'm just sometimes it's just interesting to observe that a film can theoretically function in a way to support like a hypothesis. And I think when a when a film is as abstract and as original as this. Um, because there's so many different interpretations, as you said, um, it could it could def- it could very validly be viewed as a film about immigration. Yeah, I or think about rape culture. Yeah, that's true. I think um, yeah, I think like both of those things, both of those ideas like function really well within this film because they're about yeah they're about the safety of someone within this mechanism of work. And then the lack of safety of the, the the safety they lose when they step outside it. I mean, like immigration has been used as this like this sort of thing to turn anger at like the government into like anger at a different sort of disenfranchised group. And I think that's and I think it's particularly like you said, it's um it's working class white men who are sort of encouraged to think of this group of people as destructive. Yes. And so, like, if you kind of consider her as an immigrant, she's sort of, like, she's kind of viewed as powerful in this, like, working structure that she's sort of found a home in. But then if she kind of strays outside that, then she's, like, subject to attacks. Oh, yeah. Um, so that kind of, that sort of works. And the same with the idea of, like, rape culture or sex workers, I suppose. Yeah. Like, sort of put on a kind of pedestal, pedestal or put on, like, in, within like a certain cultural framework, but then mm-hmm. in great danger um, on the outside world. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there are like loads of ways. I think the your austerity, your sort of austerity idea or the idea of her as this kind of that, like that Thatcherite policy um, works within the language idea, though, mm. because, you know, when you like there's been a lot of work and studies on the language of austerity. And you kind of touched on it beforehand of the idea of kind of phrasing things as sacrifice or having some kind of religious component. <laughs> um, and I think that she really kind of like her face changes, doesn't it? When she's got like when she's got someone to convince. Yes. And she has, uses all this language and she experiments with language, but she doesn't have any use for it if she just is is totally silent when she's mm. not working to kind of sell this this like fantasy to people. I think the thing that made me understand understand it as a something about the violence of language is the the man she encounters at the end of the film. Oh yes. Uh, and that reminded me of being bullied actually. Yeah. Um, because he, you know, she runs into him and he's just he like overtalks to her, you know, he's like yeah. asks her questions but doesn't wait for the answer and well he just talks and talks and it's kind of this overwhelming and it's this real moment where I notice like the shift in power um so it's kind of almost like he's like yeah he's sort of replaced her in this like symbolic order um and it just made me think of like being bullied at work but it also made me think of um like Trump and Boris Mm. Johnson and the sort of the language is kind of just like an onslaught of nonsense (laughs) that you can't fight against because it doesn't it's just it doesn't have any kind of like meaning or value 
Mm. anymore it's just like a, it's just like something to bombard you to make you feel like you don't have any power wow that is so true I, I love the fact that she this happens just as she's about to enter the forest and you know he's there suppo- he, supposedly serving like trying to present himself as someone who would be able to help her and guide her, mm. help her navigate this space and like give her advice. So in a way, he's taking on like the position of um, a learned or authority figure in that context. But actually, he's turning that against her. Mm. So she feels lost because she's literally like at sea, like she's in the woods, as it were, about what to do next because she's sort of derailed from her mission Mm. and so he could be he could have served as someone who might have directed her but instead he completely violates her Um, yeah and when when he finds her in that state of like half human half alien um that's I, I found that really scary actually like it's so abject it's interesting as well that the more sort of destructive your mission is, the more derailed you are when it's taken away from you. Yeah. Um, which is kind of an interesting thing to note because I found that about obviously there are different ways of people responding to this this lockdown and what's and the the coming economic crisis, but with all kind of economic crisis, it's seen as much more it's seen as like a much bigger threat to lose the industries that are like destructive and using up all of our resources than it is to like, than it is to lose like libraries and museums, you know, or like, and, or like, and the people that want to go back to work and want to go back to the office are the people that are arguably doing the most damage. And they're like the ones that are kind of holding on to their lifestyle much more than, than people who have little investment in that system. Wow. Um, so I suppose it's kind of yeah that that's interesting that her job that is is, re- is very violent and it's like she's much much more at risk when she stops doing it than but like than Becky for example who's not yeah. going to be who though she's going to lose the means of survival and she has to stay and do that work it feels like she's got enough of her like she's got this like eroticism she's got these boyfriends she's got like an idea of of why her like schedule is unfair even though she sort of has to do what she does because she feels like she's in danger of losing it she's actually you know she's actually in reality not in any danger at all like she's this sort of like vibrant being that's not going to that's actually not going to be in danger outside the walls of her (laughs) of her workplace yeah I suppose that's it it's like it's how safe you are inside work versus outside Mm. And I feel like the people with the most power are in, to a certain extent, the most in danger outside that system. Wow, I love that. Absolutely. It took me a long time to get there, but that I, that's where I got. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really, th- that is so interesting. Like, I think you're absolutely right. And just in just to follow up on like what you said about the danger element, someone said that under the skin could also be a metaphor issuing a warning against nuclear warfare Mm. Um, particularly the sequence showing like the orange red bursting of light and it's interesting to think about like trident uh, being very close to Glasgow you know Mm. 
I just like this the choice of this city being the location for for this story because there there can be so many different ways to look at it. Oh, it's such an amazing film. I really it really like you can watch it thousands of times. I think it's one of those films that just benefits from like constant rewatching. Absolutely. Yeah, it really is. Like ideally, I mean, I saw it first in the cinema as well. It really is a cinematic experience, but it also doesn't dip- disappoint upon like rewatches from at home because as you say, you can actually gain more and more from it with each viewing. So yeah, highly, highly recommend this one. Um, have we left anything out? No, we covered no. everything. Cool. Um, I'm I'm so I'm so happy I got to talk to you about compliance because I was just like I feel like I never tr- like truly processed the trauma of watching that film. Yeah, no, it's a very traumatic film, but again, it's not at all. I don't find it at all gratuitous. No. Um. Yeah, there's nothing excessive about it. No, um, you didn't exaggerate anything. No. I firmly believe this film should be taught in schools. Mm. Like, it sh- like, there should be entire courses revolving around uh, Milgram obedience experiment and this film. Yeah, but, um, it would be really interesting to be in, in, like, to be in a seminar about this film yeah. and to hear, like, everyone's view. Why can't, like, academic things be brought out into the real world after you graduate? Like, why can't you just be like, hey, I'm going to put on a seminar about this film? I suppose you can. I agree. Absolutely. It is a good thing to continue, like, these kind of focused learning groups. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks again uh, to all of you who continue to follow our series on work and money. We have yeah. some. We have some thanks, some specific thanks to give this week. Yeah. Um, we received two new donations, which really, really, really helps us out at this time. So thank you so much. Michael Walters, who um, donated to us last year as well. So re-donated. Thank you very much. It's very generous of you. Thank um, you, Michael. And a new donator, Fran Verwimp or Verwimp. I'm not sure how to pronounce your last name or where the stress goes. But um, thank you so much for your donation. It's very, very much appreciated. Very appreciated. Much obliged. It so helps us to continue creating content and continue doing this podcast, which we really, really love. And uh, as always, don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can leave a comment or rate us, we'd appreciate it. Um, Next time, we're going to be talking about property. Mm, I'm I'm looking forward to this one. Me too. So we will be tackling poltergeist and sorry to bother you. (laughs) Um, Well, I'll see you in two weeks, Mary. See you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.